0: Good morning, and welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm author and host, Kevin Hopkins, and this is episode 50. I don't know that it merits a great celebration, but it's a milestone to me. I started the podcast two months ago, um, on April the 6th, and it is now the last day of May. And so we're pretty much right on schedule with what I intended to kind of be a daily Uh, excerpt from the book of Revelation, something that people could gather some kind of insight or thought material from each day and carry on into their world. If you've been keeping very close track, you know that there are days that I'm not able to record an episode and days that I record two or three at a time. So it's been quite a journey. Uh, I've discovered new things. I've learned new things as I've Prepared for the podcast, and I've passed those things on to you. So it's been good for me. I hope it's been uh, a redeeming experience for you. We are, oh, just past halfway through the content of the book of Revelation, about two thirds through the events depicted in the book of Revelation, the prophetic uh, episodes. And so we've probably got 80 episodes that that will be recorded total. And then some of you have already asked, what will I do when I get to the end of the book of Revelation? Um, I will probably take on something else. We will probably leave the Revelation Power podcast complete at that point, and I'll move on to something else. I'm, I'm considering other topics, other books of the Bible. Several of you have requested that I just jump right over into the Gospel of John um, because you've read the book and you've heard my commentary and you know that that's where I spent the greater part of my early ministry was in study of the Gospel of John. Then I got inspired to, to expand my horizons in the writings of John and I ended up in the book of Revelation. But my first love is truly the Gospel of John, so I may well Go back to the Gospel of John and simply walk through John's Gospel in this same manner, uh, looking for a daily thought, uh, a gem of scriptural wisdom that a person could take into their day and find benefit from. So we'll see what happens at that point. But today we're in Revelation chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. You'll remember that we started the book of Revelation with messages to seven churches. Then there were seven seals that the Lamb opened to reveal God's will. Then there were the sounding of seven trumpets to announce God's activity in creation towards the end, moving creation towards the end. And now there are the pouring out of the seven bowls, which the text itself says is the final outpouring of God's wrath. And then we'll be done with... Everything that's going to happen. Now, after the after the bowls are poured out, the wrath takes a little while to be exercised in the world, right? So there's still quite a bit of the book of Revelation to go. But you'll see that uh, you'll 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 have experienced all the way through Revelation that first we see in heaven what's going to happen on the earth, right? The judgment in heaven takes place. The announcement, the proclamation, is made in heaven before things happen on the earth, because heaven isn't bound to time and space. Heaven isn't a physical place with physical boundaries. It's it's unlimited in space. Um, it's not. It doesn't function on a clock. Heaven doesn't have sunrise and sunset and orbits around the sun. Heaven isn't bound in time, and so. In heaven, all of eternity is though it happens in a single moment. God can see everything that's ever happened and everything that's going to happen as if they're all happening right now. So nothing surprises him. Nothing nothing sneaks up on him. Um, and so it's very different to switch back and forth as John does from a heavenly perspective where a pronouncement can be made that may take thousands of years to totally play out on the earth, but the decision of how it's going to turn out has already been made in heaven. And so as we, as we open this 15th chapter, as we look at the outpouring of seven bowls of wrath, bear in mind that from the time the pronouncement is made in heaven to the time there is physical response in creation may be a significant amount of time. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another great and wonderful sign in heaven, seven angels holding the seven last plagues. Notice they're not in the bowls yet. Holding the seven last plagues, for with them the wrath of God will finally be spent. Then I saw something that resembled a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who were victorious over the beast, that is, over its icon and over the number of its name, stood near the sea of glass with harps from God. So he's looking into heaven now. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, the unification of the old covenant and the new. Great and wonderful are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who does not fear and glorify your name? Because you alone are holy, because all the nations will come to fall down in worship before you, because your righteous judgments are clear. After this, I saw the temple, or more precisely, the tabernacle of testimony in heaven. He's telling you where he is. It was open, and the seven angels with the seven plagues emerged from the temple, clothed in pure shining linen and with golden sashes encircling their waists. Then one of the four cherubim gave to the seven angels seven golden offering bowls full of the wrath of the God who lives forever and ever. At that moment, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels had been accomplished. We'll stop there for a moment and just discuss this introduction to the seven bowls of wrath. It serves the purpose of the scriptural interlude that we've seen before each of the releasing of the seven seals, trumpets, and so on. There wasn't really an interlude before uh, the introduction or the messages to the seven churches because that's where we started. But before, uh, before the seals were opened, there was this vision of the Lamb who was slain. Before the trumpets were blown, there was an interlude. Now there's this vision in heaven. Very important to remember that what John is seeing here is the heavenly context. This is what's taking place before the, the bowls can be poured out, right? So, this is not on earth now. He's he's looking into heaven, seeing what's happening there. And he sees the angels holding the seven plagues as though they're holding them back. They can unleash them at any moment, but they have the seven plagues and they're holding them back for this moment. And there's an announcement and a song. And then out of the temple come these seven angels holding the plagues. John sees a sea, an ocean of what what looks like glass mixed with fire. Glass mixed with fire. Sounds like a diamond sea, doesn't it? The flash inside of a diamond we call its fire. And here is a sea of glass mixed with fire, a diamond sea. And those who had been victorious over the beast those who had not worshiped his iconic image his his representation those who had not accepted his brand into their lives but had been true to God and have died in that faithfulness stand on the sea of stand beside the sea of diamonds with harps in their hands and they sing the song of Moses and of the lamb Moses lived under the Old Covenant. Not only did Moses live under the Abrahamic Covenant, the covenant made with Abraham, but he was the receptor of the Ten Commandments, a new covenant, a new law to be kept. So Moses really represents the absolute epitome of Old Covenant. But it's the song of Moses and the Lamb because the Lamb came and fulfilled all of that law so that everyone who lived under that old covenant could have their salvation hopes realized the Messiah had come. He had accomplished the purpose for which he came. He had defeated the covenant and the law and the world in the lives of those who were faithful to God. He is the fulfillment of the old covenant and the beginning of the new covenant and they sing this song and the song is printed here the words at least we don't know what the tune was or how it sounded one day we'll hear it for ourselves but the the hymn that they sing extols the virtues of god and the the reasons that he should be feared because he alone is holy because all the nations will come and bow down before him in worship and because his righteous judgments are clear or true. His judgments are final and, and they're just. And so they're coming, right? This is a, a predecessor, a precursor that God's righteous judgments are on the way. And then John sees the temple. He says, I saw the temple more precisely the tabernacle of testimony in heaven. The tabernacle of the testimony was the holy, the holiest of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept inside the temple. The testimony that God had preserved and had led his people through an entire salvation history that he, he, he met them in the desert. He drew them out of bondage and he formed them into a new nation. They had been the children of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in fact, but so were the Canaanites who were still back in what was now called the promised land. But the children of Israel, right? The children of Jacob had been taken into captivity when they went to Egypt to look for food they got comfortable and the Egyptians put them into bondage and instead of being their friends became their owners and kept them as slaves and God called them out sent Moses to free them and then brought them out into the wilderness where he met them and he ministered to them he led them as a pillar of fire at night and a and a pillar of cloud by day he gave them food manna from heaven quail from the from the winds he brought them water from a rock god shepherded them through that desert time and because of their lack of faith they didn't get to make a straight shot from egypt to the promised land because they arrived at the promised land and responded faithlessly They had to go wander around in the desert for 40 years. And Moses himself didn't get to cross into the promised land. So there's this sense that Israel has a salvation history. God has named them, shaped them, owned them, fathered them, shepherded them, preserved them, guided them, and in response had them fashion this ark the ark of the covenant in which the 10 commandments were kept along with with Aaron's staff and a few other things and that was set into the holiest of holies in the very center of the temple where only one priest could enter once a year and and provide a sacrifice for the sins of all the people. It was a place people weren't allowed to go. And the crucifixion story of Christ has this interesting inclusion that says that at the moment that Christ surrenders his spirit and dies, the veil in the temple that separated the holiest of holies from the rest of the people was torn in two, I don't know if it was literal, but it's certainly at least figurative, that God will now no longer be kept away from his people. He's not a, an icon to be locked away. He's not some kind of museum piece to be kept away from his people so they don't touch him or ruin him. He's He's rent that division and he will be with his people. And now, in the book of Revelation, John says, I saw the temple. Well, more exactly, I saw the tabernacle of his presence. I saw the place where God resides in the center of heaven, and it was open. People could go back and forth. Angels could go back and forth. And the seven angels with the seven plagues came from that place, from the very presence of God clothed in pure shining linen with golden sashes around their waists. One of the cherubim gave them seven bowls full of God's wrath. To the wrath, they're going to add the plagues and they're going to unleash the whole thing on the earth. At that moment, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels had been poured out. That's a direct reference back to a passage of scripture in the in the Old Testament that has to do with worship in the tabernacle in the in the temple. It's found in Second Chronicles chapter five. Second Chronicles chapter five, and it says, as they bring the ark into the temple. Uh, the temple has been rebuilt or been built. The ark no longer will wander around in a, in a tent. It will now have an inner sanctuary sealed away from the outside place. In, uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, listen to this. The priests then withdrew from the holy place. All the priests who were there had consecrated themselves regardless of their divisions. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, Jedethon, and their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar, dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding the ram's horns. The ram's horns and the musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, the singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, he is good and his love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud. It just says the cloud, meaning the cloud of God's presence that went before his people by day through the desert. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord intensely filled the temple of God. There have been a few times in my life where I've experienced the presence of God in that intensity. I I can remember the two or three times very clearly. Uh, One time really sticks out in my mind because it was just a church service and and the people of god were worshiping we were opening the service like we always did and suddenly the singing wasn't just singing anymore it became real worship it became very intense and and instead of people just kind of humming along you'll notice in church a lot of times the band is singing and people are just kind of looking around. Um, I'd say that's the normal state of worship in today's society. But in that service, suddenly everybody was singing with one heart. And it, it became loud. It became intense. It became overwhelming. And, and I was leading the worship in that service. And, and I felt like we couldn't stop singing. And so we, we started the song over and we sang it again and it and it built and it got more and more intense until we came to where it felt like we should stop singing but people would not stop they kept singing and I looked at the pastor for guidance and he shrugged his shoulders like just let them sing we went through the song again and then a gentleman shouted and said Kevin wait I have something I have to say and this guy had been a, a drunk, an alcoholic, uh, not a Christian guy. He was a crooked business person from out of the community. And he came to the front and he said, I just need you to know that, that last Sunday night I came to the altar in this church and I gave Jesus Christ my heart and soul. And I know that people all over this town have said, oh yeah, there he goes again, getting getting his religion one more time but he said, yeah, I want you to know this time it's real. God has changed my life. And he began to testify and he began to tell of what God had done in his life. He took a whiskey flask out of his pocket and he set it up on the offering table in front of the church. And he said, this is what I used to close business deals with until last week. And he held up his Bible and he said, from now on, this is what I will do my business by. And people began to cry, and people began to shout out praises to God, and the Holy Spirit got intense, and the pastor stepped up and invited people who wanted that kind of power in their lives to come and pray. And and we began the song again, and and people poured up to that place of prayer. They knelt at the altar. They knelt on the steps leading up to the platform. They knelt in the front row of chairs. There weren't one-tenth of the entire congregation still sitting in their seats. Everybody had come to the front. And and I continued to sing the song, but nobody was singing with me anymore. Everyone was on their knees. Even the people still out in the seats had taken a kneeling position in front of their seat. Nobody was just sitting. The pastor and I were the only two people standing standing in the whole place. And I sang through the song once more and the musicians stopped. They could not go on playing. They they abandoned their seats and set down their instruments and knelt on the floor or laid on the floor with their face to the ground. And And I couldn't go on singing. And I knelt by my chair. I looked over. The pastor was kneeling by his chair. No one dared to make a sound, for fear that we would interrupt whatever God was doing. It was so apparent that God was present, very closely and intimately present. People were softly weeping as they knelt. Others were whispering prayers. No one would make a loud sound because nobody wanted to interrupt what God was doing. And we stayed in that position. It must have been half an hour or so and finally, somebody went back to a chair. Somebody went back to their seat, but they didn't say a word. They just sat down. And and over the next several minutes, more people arose from their kneeling or their face to the ground position. And they went and they sat in their chairs silently. The musicians all regained their positions at their piano or organ or drums or guitars or trumpets or whatever instrument they were playing, but they didn't play. We sat there in silence. An entire church, 500 people in dead silence, afraid to ruin that moment of God's intense presence, still basking in the fact that it was so obvious that God was so very close. And finally, after a long time one of the the piano player began to play a very quiet worship song and a few people in the congregation began to sing it quietly and so I, I stood up and I picked up that song and we began to worship again, si- almost silently, quietly, whispered singing and it grew and it grew. And people stood and they raised their hands to heaven in a church that wasn't by any means a Pentecostal kind of church. But we sang our hearts out for another probably 20 minutes with nobody leaving. We were 30 or 45 minutes past the time that church would normally have have adjourned. But nobody would leave because we were in God's presence. Finally, the pastor said, I know it's, it's way past lunchtime, but if you want to stay, you're welcome to stay. If you want to sing, we'll continue to play music. If you need to go, feel free to go without any without any shame or guilt. Go about your life. Take God with you. But if you want to stay in this place for this time, we'll stay till everybody's left. We probably stayed another 30 minutes. It, you know, church was usually done at noon. It's now nearly 1.30 and there are still people there worshiping, quietly praying with each other, talking about what God's doing in their lives. It was probably 1.30 before finally the last people waved at us and walked out of the church and we we stopped the music, sat down in exhaustion. And the pastor said, I have never seen anything like that in my life. And I hadn't either to that time. I just thank God that, that two or three times in my life, I've experienced his presence in that way, in a way that just stifled every human thing that would be done in that place, that quieted as though an immense cloud, a fog of God's presence had filled that place and and the reverence was so deep that no one could speak. Talk about a a precursor to what's gonna come. In that community and that church, from that day on, things were never the same. Worship was more intense. Service was more energetic. Everything we did, we did with the remembrance of that moment when God moved in in such an intense way. Here it is in Revelation chapter 15 in heaven. At that moment, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his presence, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues had been accomplished. The temple's wide open, but nobody can come and go because the the presence of God is that intense. I long for that kind of presence in my life every day. I pray for you to experience that kind of presence of God's spirit in your life, if not every day, at least periodically. I pray that if it's just you in your car singing worship music, with, with some recorded medium that at some point it it takes you up into a place where it's not just you anymore in the car, but God is there and you can sense his intense presence. If you haven't experienced that, I encourage you to pursue it, to, to seek it, to ask God to be that intensely present in some moment in the near future. If you've experienced it once, I ask you to pursue it again. We call that revival, renewal. I want that relationship, that intensity of my awareness that God is right here with me. I want that again and again. I want it in the moment that I pass from this earth into heaven before I stand by the the fiery sea of glass. Before I play a harp, I don't know how good I'll be on a harp, but okay. Before I'm there, I want to know a few more times the intensity of God's real presence in my life on this earth. And I want you to experience the same. The danger of our do better speech and our little concert every Sunday is that all the light and the smoke and the the show, the performance, and the cool, happy little message with the cool, happy little fab dress. That's not God. That's not God. I'm looking for real worship. I'm looking for real intensity. I'm looking for his real presence. It doesn't have to be glum. It doesn't have to be prophetic. It doesn't have to be threatening. In fact, it's none of those things. It's just real. And and I'm praying for you right now, wherever you are, that a few more times in your life, you would have those moments where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the presence of God in your life is real. Let's go seek that together.